Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. I'm glad to see that some of us um, made it here, even though Oktoberfest is going on. Soctoberfest, I found out about that this weekend. There's a number of Storyline families who are uh, in Indianapolis watching their daughters play, little ones play soccer. Lisa and I went and watched them play last week. It was so fun. And then we got invited to Indianapolis this weekend <laughs> to watch Soctoberfest, and I told them that we were busy. But um, <laughs> anyways, have you noticed how many things are must-have nowadays? Like, marketers are using this language for the, for the latest and greatest everything. There are must-have fashions, must-have uh, big-boy appliances, uh, even must-have apps for your phone. And the must-haves extend now well beyond just, like, consumer products. People have must-haves for other people. So employers, you know, they have this must-have lists for prospective employees or at least they used to. Now they pretty much just take anybody. But, um, but the most infamous of all of these must-have lists, I think, come from the world of dating. And men have their must-have list about women. Women have their lists uh, for men. And I was doing some research on this, and I read that th these are the top four must-haves that are looked for in men, okay? About six feet tall, middle-aged, thinning hair, part-time PE teacher. <laughs> Who knew? I had no idea. What can I say? So anyways, but there are all kinds of things about this, that, or the other in life that we think are must-haves. And, and this extends, I think, very much into the world of spirituality or the realm of religion and church. When when we're in a church, visiting a church, maybe we're considering a church, there are things that we think we must have, like certain ways of dressing or singing or preaching. And, and of course, this is a two-way street, don't forget. I mean, uh, religious communities, off, they have their must-have list about us too. So everybody's kind of checking everybody out. But I think to some extent that's true in all areas of life. And it's our must-have lists that often kind of divide us, whether it's into different communities, different neighborhoods, political parties, religions, denominations, because our lists are all different. And, and yet, I think we can all agree on one thing, and that, that is that we must have a must-have list. It seems like everybody is okay with that and agrees with that. So I was thinking about th that this week as... I was looking into chapter 14 of John, and I was reading um, an author that uh, really means a lot to me. His name is Dallas Willard. I've recommended his books before, and he writes about this quite a bit, and um, I, like I said, his, his books are just fantastic, and I, I happened to read a story about his wife this week. His wife's name was, was Jane, and she tells a story about a small group that she led years ago. And one day, this woman, who was part of their church and part of their small group for years, arrived at the small group and announced, I just realized, I don't know if I believe in God. And Jane said that everyone in the group broke out into applause because they felt like, now we can really get real. Like something had, had just happened in that little group 
because now it's not, we're not just going to talk about, I guess, what we're supposed to talk about. Like, it was this huge step forward for this small community of women, and, and this woman had broke through the must-have facade of what is okay to talk about and what's not, and Jane Willard claims that this changed everything. And I think one way to look at Jesus in his gospel of grace is almost like he's taking our must-have list and kind of just holding it up and showing it to us and inviting us to reconsider them. Like, imagine a new way of seeing life or how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, one another, and even life itself. Is our must-have list or our must-have lists, are they in the right priority? Are the right things on them? Are they serving us well? And I think that's what we're doing to a large extent as a community when we come together, whether it's on our sun, in our Sunday morning gatherings or in the multiple other ways that storyline comes together throughout the week, is we're trying to look hard at our must-have lists, the ones that have been handed to us, sometimes foisted on us, and often created by us, and just wonder together, like, is that list... Is it helping us on our way? Or is it at the point where it's actually getting in our way? And this morning, as we keep, continue to read through the book of John together in the New Testament of the Bible, we are, like I said, in chapter 14. And, and this re-examination of the must-have list, I think, is essentially what's going on in this chapter. The last couple weeks... Just as a reminder, what we've seen is that Jesus has kind of, John has moved from telling the story of the life of Jesus, like that his interactions with other people, um, some, some of his teachings, the, the healings, the miracles. He's moved from that, and Jesus has shifted now into talking quite a bit about his own death, or at least his own departure. Sometimes it's kind of vague, and his, his followers can't kind of, totally make out what he's talking about, but it is, it's freaking out his 12 closest friends, these men that we've called, that we call the disciples. And, and that now they are realizing in this moment, as Jesus has, has shifted uh, to talking about his death, that being with Jesus, and that means keeping him safe, and of course keeping him alive, is their most important must-have. And it's really put them in this vulnerable place because now they're recognizing that their must-have is in jeopardy or something is not quite like they thought it was going to be. I felt like that a lot this last week, personally, as the hurricane approached Florida. Um, our daughter Jenna lives there um, for grad school, and there's actually quite a few um, other people that I care very deeply about that live in Florida. Um, some of them aren't there yet. They're, gonna, they're going to be going to Florida. They're snowbirds. But some, we've about four or five storyline families um, have moved to Florida in the last few years. And so I was checking in on them and obviously checking in on Jenna quite a bit. Finally talked her into maybe, maybe getting a flashlight, maybe some bottled water. You know, I don't want to hover and be that parent, but it is a category four hurricane. Um, but I went into last week, before kind of I, the, the news kind of just really sunk in for me, what, what's about to happen in Florida, 
I went into them last week as I do most weeks, which is I have my must-haves. Like, this is what I must get done list this week. But when a hurricane is beelining towards your daughter and people that you love, things change. You start to reevaluate. And I think we all know this feeling when something ominous is on the horizon or some sudden tragedy befalls us. It stops us in our tracks. It really makes us reevaluate. You know, we, I think we ask the question that the song asked, you know, to believe in the way that we've been living is maybe just really a hard way to go. So we reevaluate, we take stock, we ask deep questions about what matters most, and that, I think, is the backdrop for chapter 14 and where we're going to head this morning. So last week we saw Jesus in this small upper room, and he's with his 12 closest friends, the disciples, and he does something very unusual. He, he's been talking about leaving or dying, and, and he, then he washes their feet. And this is so unusual. I know that the, I'm sure the disciples were looking around at each other like, what is going on? And, and they're really discombobulated, right? And this is not in their plans. This was not in their must-have list. And they just, you know, their life just took a hard left, really, and they're not sure if they're going to be all right. So... Um, I think a lot of us know what that feels like in different moments of our life. A lot of us can relate to that from our times in the pandemic. We were talking about it backstage. I'm, I'm a teacher, and Cliff is a teacher, and being around kids, you just recognize they're not the same. You know, when the pandemic messed things up, and of course, we lost a lot of people. And um, one of the people that passed away during the pandemic was a singer and songwriter named John Prine. And he passed away from COVID. And he wrote um, the second song, Angel from Montgomery, that we did this morning. And he, many other hit songs, by the way. And his son, Tommy, is now a musician and has spoken very powerfully about how losing his father made him rethink his life. And last Sunday, Lindsay was telling me about a song, this song that we're about to do right now, that Tommy wrote for his father. And I think it captures some of the feelings and the vulnerability that the disciples are experiencing in this moment and that we all deal with when life comes at us in ways that are Get sad when there's ships in the 
got to see an old friend Laughed and stayed up till it came to an end Cause he must be even soon as we do Tend to get lost in the stars Waste every night Wondering where we all are How we must be living soon As we should Standing by water Harder and harder it's sad when there's ships in the harbor They must be leaving soon As they should Takes time to know when you're wrong Takes even longer Put it all in a song And I wish it was easy to Like he did When I'm by peaceful water It's harder and harder I'd give anything just to talk to my father But I guess he was leaving soon As we do We just pass through I am Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, thank you. So that's kind of, I think, the context and the feeling that we're in in chapter 14. Jesus is saying things that imply that he's departing, that he's leaving, that his hour has arrived, that he's going to die. And, and the thought of him not being the foundational figure in their life was just incredibly upsetting for his followers. In much of chapter 14, which is, it's just a, it's a beautiful chapter, much of chapter 14 is Jesus trying to comfort his followers. He's trying, it's, very, it's so touching. He's just trying to reassure them. And I'd like to spend our time together this morning wondering about just one line. It's just one verse in this chapter. I'm not pretending that it's the most important line or that it's the main point of this chapter at all. But it's the line that just jumped off the page at me. Um, I think maybe especially because of this week with the hurricane and my daughter down there and losing a couple of close friends in the last couple weeks. This is the line that just jumped off the page at me. This is what Jesus said. All who love me will do what I say. And my Father will love them. And we will come and make our home with each of them. Now, to me, I mean, isn't that just a fascinating thing to say? We will come and make our home with you. Now, I am absolutely sure that I've read that 
so many times before, but I never really saw it. It never really hit me. And it just makes me wonder, is this the one must have in life, for life? God making his home with us and in us. And if so, what is getting in the way and what can help us on our way to making that happen? And so that's, that's what I'd like to just throw out there for us to consider this morning together. So have you noticed how many folks are doing home improvement projects? Like it exploded in the pandemic. We were all stuck at home, seeing these flaws in our homes, right? And just that whole industry went crazy. In 2021, in fact, 76% of Americans did some kind of home renovation. 76% of American households, three out of four. And that industry earned, you ready for this? $538 billion in one year. And I know that we've contributed to that. Um, several years ago, our toilet would not stop running. And it really needed this, a $2 seal, okay? And so, but we thought, why not get a new toilet? And I thought, sorry, we thought that was a great idea. <laughs> but do we really want to put a brand new toilet in that old bathroom? So some of us thought, sure, why not? And others of us disagreed. I think you're noticing how I'm telling this story very carefully, right? And then we thought, do we really want a remodeled bathroom in a house with just two stalls in the garage? We better add a third. Let's just put it this way. By the time we were done daydreaming about this, that toilet ended up costing a lot more than $2, okay? So look, we live in an era of home, extreme home makeovers. You know how we know that? We have the TV shows to prove it right? Every channel all the time, there's somebody doing something with their house and making a TV show about it. There are plenty of reasons for us to believe that we are growing more and more preoccupied with our homes. One sociologist described it like this. We have gone from nesting to cocooning in our homes to, at this point, burrowing into them, effectively shutting out the world to a large extent. Guilty right? So our preoccupation with our homes would make some, for some very, I think, interesting therapy sessions, but let's just agree for now that there's more to life than the dwelling that we happen to live in. So is there a different way to think about home, especially considering that Jesus said this, all who love me will do what I say, and my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Have you ever thought about yourself as a home, as God's home? I suppose we could choose to be aware of this home inside of us, take good care of it, or we could neglect it, fill it with all kinds of stuff that's of little or no value. That's a completely different television show, right? <laughs> the Hoarders, wow. Now, look, I wanna be careful, call a quick timeout right now and say, this message, this talk, is not going where I think we're fearing it, it's going. Because like, this could come across real easily like, you know, getting our home in order is something that we've got to do to be good enough for God. To be deserving or to be worthy of God to take up residence in our hearts. 
But, but I don't think that's what Jesus is implying here. In fact, our friend C.S. Lewis describes the process like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I just love that. Now notice how this works, though, according to Lewis. Because if we're not careful, we're going to have this religious response or religious reaction to this line from Jesus. Because religion is always implying or just flat out just telling us, get your act together. Like, shape up. Like, get your life together. Call Chip and Joanna on the phone right now and get your fixer-upper fixed up, okay? And then, and then, when everything's nice and new and put together, God will come and be a part of your life. But Jesus in his gospel of grace completely flip, flips that on its head. This is God showing up to move into our home before it is renovated. Long before it's uh, renovated. See, everything in us thinks that we have to be somehow ready for God, worthy, deserving, but going all, go all the way back to when we started this read through John, all the way back to chapter 1, in the beginning of John, we find that Jesus is God himself moving into the neighborhood. Like our neighborhood. Some could say the wrong neighborhood, right? And now here we are in John 14, and it appears God isn't just moving into the neighborhood. He's looking to move in with us now that's two different things so let's be clear about this god isn't moving in because we're worthy or deserving or ready he's moving in to get us ready and i think that may be what jesus means here and the other part of this line that we picked out for this morning all who love me will do what i say other versions will say, uh, other translations of this passage say, will trust me. Is God on our must-have list? His disciples, faced with losing Jesus, are realizing, yes. Then, Jesus is saying, take me up on my offer to move into your heart and trust me with the renovations. You see, when we accept our acceptance that God is already on our side, that there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because he's already on our side, that he is willing to pay the ultimate price for us as is, which is 
my translation of this uh, passage in Romans. While we were of no use to him whatsoever, he came to us. When we do that, really what we're doing is we're just handing God the keys. That is listening to him. That is doing what he says. That is trusting him. And then he'll just move in. As is. No home inspection, nothing. So the life of faith in God's grace is not about getting our house in order or fixing everything up just so, just right, so that God may be, you know, as he's shopping around, that he may be interested in us, that we might be good enough for him. No. The life of faith in the grace of God begins with believing we belong. It begins with believing that we belong to a God who wants us as is and wants to get started working on what will make life work. It's a beautiful thing, but I know it, it's, it is so hard to believe. I struggle to believe in this. I think we all just, it's, it's such great news. And, and I often wonder, why is it so hard for us to believe such great news? Why, 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 why is it so hard for us to believe such great news? And there are many reasons. And in, in one way, we're talking about one or two or three of those reasons pretty much every Sunday. But I'd like to touch on two in the time that we have left that I think have come up for me recently, personally, and I think um, would resonate with the disciples at this time as well. And the first one is, one of the reasons is, it's cultural. Like, the culture that we live in right now strongly encourages a very different way of seeing God, uh, who he is, and what he's about. In, in fact, one sociologist from Notre Dame, his name is Christian Smith, has researched this. He sat down with thousands of people and interviewed them, like, tell me what it is that you believe about God. And he kind of put all these views together and came up with an aggregate, like came up with like, um, like a summed up, like, you know, a summary statement of the most common view that American culture has of God. And then he titled it, he kind of gave it a long title and a, a little bit of a confusing one, but he calls it moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's a mouthful, I know. And, um, but this is, this is what our culture, according to uh, Smith's research, in general, encourages us to believe about God. The first thing is that God exists and is watching over all of life. Second thing, he wants us to be good and nice and fair. Third part, point. The goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. Point four, God is not involved in my real everyday life except when I need a problem solved. And number five, good people go to heaven. Now, there's certainly some good stuff in there. I, I'm not bringing this up to even disagree with any of it because I think God absolutely wants us to be good and nice and fair. And while I wouldn't call Jesus' invitation into the abundant life that we saw him making a, a couple chapters ago, um, the same thing as happy or feeling good about ourselves. Whatever the abundant life is, 
Jesus believes it's even better than happiness and high self-esteem, okay? But Smith's point, I think, is the same thing that many of us have discovered on our own. And that is believing in that kind of a God, the God of moralistic, therapeutic deism, doesn't really give us the comfort that we need when life gets bad and tragic, or the courage that we need when life gets hard and challenging, nor certainly the inspiration that we need to make the sacrifices of investment and the investments of time and energy and love that make life worth it. In short, I think the typical view, this typical view of God leaves us unchanged. It reduces life to like surface level, like let's slap on a coat of paint here, let's maybe put on a new front door, but it's all cosmetic while the inside of our home remains the same. So at best, the, the way that the culture encourages us to encourages us to think about or to believe in God if it encourages it at all, at best, it's, it's just going to help us to maybe look good for a while, but it just, it just leaves us empty. It leaves us as was. And I think we know that's not going to get it. See, the promise Jesus makes in this last evening, remember we talked about this last week, he knows he's about to be arrested he knows he's about to, be, to go on trial, to be crucified. So this is his last evening with his closest friends. This invitation that he, he makes suggests that God want to, wants to be a permanent resident in us. And that means taking on our biggest issues, our biggest foundational concerns. This is not just a, a flip house that he's looking at. And this runs counter, I think, to the, cu the cultural view of God, which is one of, the way, one of the reasons that I think it makes it hard to believe in this really good news. But the second thing that I want to point out very briefly is that I also think it goes against our personal preference a lot of times. Just to be blunt, I'll, I'll speak for me, because I know it does for me. Which is why that I can know I, I need a renovation, but... I also resist it because it's not what I think I want. One writer gets at it like this. The very first word a child learns is no. <laughs> we all know that's true. And the second word is mine. Now, the only argument I have with that is sometimes that's reversed, right? But, so, but ev so even from a very early age, they, they are beginning to establish their own little kingdoms, as they grow up and sit side by side in the car, they clearly decide what's theirs and practically draw an imaginary line down the center of the back seat. I remember that, oh my gosh. I remember going down the road and my sister Michelle complaining, mom, he's on my side. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And then all of a sudden, my mom would become like a Hollywood stunt driver, right? <laughs> One hand, and she'd reach him back and we're ducking, you know. It's like, didn't slow her down at all, right? But going, um, this is, this is, happens right from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we've been protecting our kingdom, our home. This is mine. This belongs to me. 
Maybe. That's why we always feel the need to protect what's ours, even if it's just cosmetic or how we look to other people, our image, our reputation. Haley, honey, um, I need you to do something for me. Ugh, Mom, my arm hurts. Why don't you find out what it is before you start making up excuses to get out of it? Okay, what is it? I need you to talk to your sister. I think that there's something going on with her and a boy. So? So? I am your mother, and it is my job to make sure that you girls don't get involved with a predator. Okay, Mom, stop watching Dateline, and why can't you just talk to her? I have tried to talk to her. I, she won't talk to me, you know that. That's because you get so weird every time a boy comes near us. I, I just don't want you girls to... To make the same mistakes that you did? No. No. Mom, I'm not an idiot. I pick up on things. And mm -hmm. I don't think that you were the good girl you pretend you were. Wow, that is so untrue. I was a very good girl. Hmm. Your kids don't need to know who you were before you had them. They need to know who you wish you were, and they need to try to live up to that person. They're gonna fall short. But better they fall short of the fake you than the real you. Which is why we don't hide anything. That is the opposite of what I just said. I was not listening. <laughs> oh, boy. Our favorite show. It's easy to see this in other people's lives. And it's easy to laugh at in other people's lives. But it's a tragic way to live. Like the fake you. The fake me. One of my favorite writers said, it's... A reputation is a terrible thing to live for. Oh, we talk about the dreadmill. That's the dreadmill right there. One of the things that I've noticed about all of these home renovation shows is they all start the same way. Like the crew comes in with the hard hats, and it's about clearing out the clutter, the unnecessary stuff that's accumulated, the stuff that we think defines us and secures us, but it isn't really helping us on our way. It's getting in our way. Dallas Willard, who I mentioned earlier, uh, put it this way. The greatest need that you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity, is renovation of our heart. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, actions come from has been formed by a world away from God. Now, it must be transformed. So there, there are cultural and there are personal reasons that, that clutter up the way that we think about God, that, that keep him at arm's length. And for me, it comes down to this. I like God in my neighborhood. I'm not so sure I want him living in my home. Because that is a whole other thing. And I think that is what Jesus is doing here with his disciples and by implication what he wants to do with and for us. This is the invitation to fight our temptation, the preoccupation that we have with things and consumption, with security and control, with our reputation and our image, and with all the cosmetic fixer-upper, you know, temporary solutions that we kind of limp through life with. And instead, really try to get down to, allow someone to come in and get at the foundational problems and issues. Look, when we are hurting and uncertain, we are more open to this. And, and this is one of those moments for the disciples. 
I know that some of us are in that kind of season in our life. And, and maybe you are too, and, and maybe you're not. And if not, then this may not strike you this morning. But if you are, when Jesus invites himself into our hearts, he is saying, this belongs to me. And that's what I think we need to hear in this offer to make his home with us. Our heart is his must-have. And let me close with just one last thought. Because while I definitely don't want to, us to get the impression this morning that it's our job, our effort, our goodness that renovates our heart in some way that it's now worthy or deserving of God's moving in. Because that would be religion. That's the very opposite of the gospel of grace. I also don't want to leave us with the misconception that our renovation is all and only about us. Willard again writes so beautifully, Jesus saves us by the realistic restoration of our heart to God and by dwelling there with his Father through the Spirit. The renovated heart inhabited by God is the only real hope of humanity on earth. We live, and we know this, in a wild world that desperately needs the God who wants to take up residence in every human heart. And the primary way that God does that in the world is when we allow him to do it in us. We then become an outpost of his grace, a person, and together a community that others will see and hear and experience as God's desire to take up residence in them. I don't know about you, but I like to tell the truth. Truth seems to change every Tuesday. the news man it just gives me the blues no one listens we're just on a mission to hear their own voice it's a wild world we're all trying to find our place in it it's a wild world and no one seems to understand it it's a wild world there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it love is all we got give away some folks ain't got a dollar to their name others got their own jet plane we all got the same blood running through our veins whether or not you pray black or white straight or gay you still deserve the love of neighbor it's a wild world we're all trying to find our place in it it's a wild world and no one seems to understand
It's a wild world and there ain't no way I'm gonna quit it. Love is all we got if we have lists. You do. We need to, I think. And many of them have to do with our, the building that we live in and what we think it needs to feel like home. But I hope this reassurance from Jesus this morning, that we belong to him, that our heart is on his must-have list, is a great encouragement to open our door to God. To trust he's not only going to move in and make some amazing changes, but his desire is also to move through us and to change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place. We thank you for the opportunity to be together, and we thank you for the way that you love us. And you just didn't talk about it. You didn't just write it in stone, but that you came to us personally. You moved into our neighborhood and that you want to move into us and through us into the world. God, I pray that this week you would show us our must-have lists, that you would give us the courage to really reevaluate those and ask some hard questions of ourselves. And, and, and I'm so thankful that you are asking, that you're knocking at the door because you want to move into our heart and our home. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>